A group of artists and writers tried to start a cultural revolution in Egypt in the 1930s. If they had succeeded, history would have been very different today. This is the Hyperallergic Podcast, and I'm Harag Vartanian. The movement was called Art and Liberty. It advocated for a free, secular society that protected freedom of expression. Few people outside of Egypt may know it, but that's all set to change because there are two major exhibitions taking place. One started at the Pompidou in Paris, and the other ones started last fall here, in Cairo. I'm here at Tahrir Square, site of the Arab Spring in 2011. But we're here to understand another revolution that began in this great city. I decided to visit Fatim Mustafa in her gallery, Art Talks. She's writing a book about Egyptian modern art, and she thinks the art and liberty movement have lessons for today. They really broke a lot of taboos. They changed the way art is done, they changed the way art is displayed, they changed the, the way where art should be displayed. Uh, okay, so they were very controversial curators as well. For them, all the other first-generation artists were slaves to Europe, old acad academic schools, and they were slaves to the bourgeoisie or the elite and the aristocracy. They were not in tune with what's happening on the ground. George Henin, in each of their catalogues, the five catalogues, they used to have catalogues in French and in Arabic, he said, you know, we want a shock. We want people to come and leave shocked so that they remember what sufferance is all about. That was the man, George Hanin. He was the leader of Art and Liberty. The son of an Egyptian diplomat, he moved all over Europe, and he studied at the Sorbonne in Paris. And it was there that he apparently met André Breton. Sound familiar? He was the father of surrealism. Fatin says the vision of Egyptian art he supported rejected the growing tide of fascism in Europe. He was trying to tell people that there is something very bad happening in Europe, and it was called fascism and Nazism. And of course, you know that there were at least 5,000 works of art that were destroyed or whatever confiscated by Hitler without going to depth because they were associated with uh, Jewish uh, artists and so on and so forth. And, and George Henin was very much a... Um, became totally infatuated by that and wanted to join the movement in Europe uh, fighting fascism and, and Nazism, and that's what he was really talking about, that we must protect the freedom of expression, we must protect freedom of art, and that includes fighting Nazism, fascism in Europe, and ensure that it doesn't reach Egypt. Art and Liberty's 1938 manifesto was called Long Live Degenerate Art. They were clearly reacting to the Nazis, who called the art they despised degenerate. Hanin, joined by some of the leading artists of the day, wrote, quote, We see only the imprisonment of thought, whereas art is known to be an exchange of thought and emotion shared by all humanity, one that knows not these artificial boundaries. But Fatin says they failed to reach the masses. They were big supporters of labor union protests. And at, at a certain point in time, they went and published and designed the pamphlets and they wanted to distribute them uh, to the masses. So they walked in the streets at midnight 
and they started shouting, oh, men, all workers of Cairo go down and we have to protest. And actually, all the people woke up and, and threw water on them because they were bothering them and they were speaking in weird Arabic, you know, not very proper Arabic. So they, they were, that's one of their key issues, that they never were able to reach the masses while groups like the Muslim Brotherhood were very smart in how they approached the masses by having infrastructure all over Egypt. They just didn't remain in Cairo. The second thing, so they proliferated across the governorates. The second thing that they did, the Muslim Brotherhood, is that they addressed uh, poverty. So they started having health uh, solutions, they had helping the poor, all these, you know, extra activities. So they, they were able to get a lot of support. And according to Hassan al-Banna by the mid-40s, again, no, I don't know how statistically it's true, correct, but he claimed that there were half a million members of the Muslim Brotherhood. That's significant, yeah. given the small population of Egypt at that time. The Art and Liberty Group, no, they were in their salons, they were publishing nice books, uh, magazines, paintings in uh, Le Foyer, du lycée français, <laughs> du Caire, you know what I yeah, mean? Right. So at the end of the day, I think this is what, what they missed. Had they, had they reached the masses, maybe history would have been very different. Hanin would eventually be forced into exile in the 1960s for being an outspoken anti-fascist. The exhibition at Palace of Arts snakes through the entire building. Starting with the Art and Liberty Group, there are a number of really impressive works, including Carlos de Zidero's Satan Around the World, which is a large, traditional-looking landscape, but has this small satanic figure hanging at the very top of the painting. Then there's Ramesses Yunnan's Nature Loves a Vacuum from 1944. It evokes a little bit of European surrealism and painters like Yves Tanguy, but there's definitely more of an earthy tone to the colors and a shadowy, darker element to the whole composition. From there, we go on to other galleries that include artists like Van Leo, a photographer who was known as a surrealist during the period, but we often don't see exhibited in this context. Following him, the contemporary art group probably has the most impressive gallery and display, where painters like Samir Rafi and other portraitists show a type of Egyptian art focused on the monumental figure and folk symbolism. There are a number of artists here to discover. One of my favorites was Injia Flatoon, who grew up in a traditional Muslim family and discovered Marxism at school in Cairo. She was later jailed for her political beliefs, but she continued to paint even in prison. Her work is full of ideas of freedom, anguish, and labor. She's very unique for the era. I spoke to co-curator Sheikh Ahur, who's the daughter of the ruler of Sharjah in the UAE, and asked her why she decided to curate the show in the first place, which she did with Salah Hassan, who's based at Cornell University. I think there are a lot of people who are studying the Egyptian surrealism or have researched it. There's a lot of work, you know, happening about it. Uh, but I think it's a good thing because it's important for us to write our history. It's important to document these things. And, and how about in terms of like writing the art history? I guess, you know, some people are wondering why all this interest is coming from outside Egypt. And uh, some Egyptians are wondering like, why aren't Egyptians writing this or doing this? Why do you think that is? 
sometimes it's it's much harder to get things done in Egypt. Um, so there aren't a lot of facilities. There isn't a lot of the. Um, I think you need a you need a big team, and I think that's why it was important for us to do this in Egypt. And we did it with the Egyptians, with the Egyptian ministry, with the Egyptian co-curators, researchers, because it was in a way a support structure. It was a system. It's writing our history as Arabs, but also their history as Egyptians. And having it open here was very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it is that Egyptian show. I was at the opening for the show, and it was packed full of a lot of Egyptians who wanted to see these paintings, many of which they'd never seen in person before. And this was a whole history that a lot of them were still learning themselves. So how did this group, Art and Liberty, really come about? I asked writer Fatin Mustafa for her opinion. There were a lot of inequities. The masses were still poor, uneducated because of the British. So you had inequities and uneducation, and you had a lot of poverty, malnutrition. So a lot of people don't want to see that, but it was the reality on the ground. Hence came and appeared beside the Islamist revival, a leftist slash Marxist emergence of a, of a new ideology, of course, coming from the West, uh, who started to question, well, neither religion nor um, neo-Faranism are the solution. We need to look at the third alternative. This is where the Art and Liberty group starts to appear as a group of very young intellectuals, uh, not just artists, artists, writers, who believed that the only way for Egypt to gain independence, to gain social justice, and for the people to be um, de- human, decent human, is to ask for total freedom, liberty of thinking, of acting, of expression, and so on, devoid of Islam, devoid of the monarch, devoid of everything. There was clearly criticism within Egyptian society of this kind of radical idea. Yes. Now, what, what did that look like? They were a group of, yes, as you said, agitators, rebellious young men. They were all in their 20s. Uh, we're talking George Hinein, Ramses Yunan, Kamil Telmiseni, Fouad Kamil, Anwar Kamil. There were a lot of non-Egyptians as well who were part of that movement. Were there any women? There were, especially uh, at the beginning, more of uh, writers, poets, Marie Cavadia, a few women. They opened, they made salons and they invited those young, unmarriageable uh, young men to come and talk. And later, a little bit later, in the 40s, there was the emergence of uh, artist painters such as Injia Flaton. For a certain period of her career, she was a surrealist. Amy Nimr. There were several ones. Okay. Yes. Was there any animosity towards that? Actually, was... not only there were women, Muslims, Jews, Christians, uh, Italians. Italian-born, Bulgarian-born. It was a totally uh, universal melting pot living in Egypt who who gathered together to get to, in the belief that they can free Egypt from all sorts of confinements, be it social, economic, religious, and so on. So it was part of that cosmopolitan milieu that Egypt was so famous for in that era. Absolutely, absolutely. But it never it never really cracked through beyond that, it sounds like. Unfortunately, it did not. Uh, And I think there are several reasons for that. They appeared at a time when when there was a revival of 
the Islamist ideology. It really indicates the, the, the start of censorship because of religious reasons. So what does it feel like now as an Egyptian to see that other people are writing the history and sort of, you know, everyone when they write a history sort of throws a little bit of themselves in it, I think, and, and sort of uses what part of the history they want and omits other parts. What does that feel like? I'm very proud, actually, because I think that the Egyptian legacy is unparalleled. Egyptian modern art is unparalleled in the region. The Art and Liberty Group is a symbol of, uh, in my opinion, the climax of, in, of the Nahda project. Uh, they are the products and the children of the best that Egypt could offer at that time. And I wish to see more of these intellectuals today. Uh, so seeing more interest from the world, such as the Pompidou's exhibition that's opening in Paris is testimony of the importance of Egypt as a cultural center and of the Art and Liberties group importance and intellectual legacy. I think a, a lot of Arab countries have not gone through that experiment in depth, none, none. But the Art and Liberty group is a unique experience that uh, hopefully will happen again in Egypt. It's the universal language of art and Arabs have to be part of it. You know, Western museums have to and are work doing a great job trying to understand our region better. Maybe it's fashionable, maybe because of the really, really regional turmoil. And probably art is going to be the way to bridge a lot of gaps. Art and liberty may not be so well known in Egypt itself yet. And it made me also wonder, why is it until now we haven't been seeing this art in museums across the West? I went to the Metropolitan Museum to talk to Claire Davies. The title is Assistant Curator, Modern and Contemporary Art, comma, Middle East, comma, North Africa, comma, and Turkey. We sat at the Temple of Dendur and discussed why there was so much ancient Egyptian art but so little modern Egyptian art in the collection. Art history and the museum world are set up to mirror an idea that of the, the US and Europe existing in the present and the future and the rest of the world are in a sense ancient or um, non-modern spaces. And I think it's in a sense it's a systemic problem that cannot be tackled by one person alone, but I think there's a certain amount of impact you can have by staging exhibitions that illustrate the richness of connections that artists had, not just within Egypt, but you know, across between Egypt and or the Middle East and South America, or Egypt and Asia or Africa. There's a whole life of an ecology of art and art networks and that has not received anything like the, um, the attention it deserves. Claire also thinks Western museums have to revisit the concept of modern. I think we tend to think that the question of the modern is resolved and it's completely resolved in Europe and the US, but that conversation has always been happening outside of those places. Another stumbling block when talking about non-Western modernism is this perception that modern art from outside the West was derivative. I asked Claire if we're still fighting that battle. 
We are still fighting that battle, yeah, unfortunately. And I think, I think that will change as people start asking different questions and just have a better sense of what was going on in other places. One of the things, for example, the Art and Freedom Group is often referred to as the Egyptian Surrealists. That's, you know, that's okay in, in, a, in a sense, and they were interested in, in many Surrealist painters. Uh, some of them are card-carrying members of the Surrealist group, but they didn't often refer to themselves as Surrealists. They were in, interested in independent art, um, in the idea of free art, and that was very much a discussion that was rooted in and directed towards the terms of a very volatile situation in Egypt. So there's a way in which there's a lot of false friends in terms of vocabulary and images and you can easily miss if you don't know the complexity of what they're engaging, the kind of levels of what's going on in the work and in the discussion. What is one major idea or something in this in 20th century Egyptian art and particularly this period we're talking about, the Art and Liberty Group, the Art and Freedom Group, um, that you think people aren't aware of? Uh, one thing I find really interesting about them, compelling, is their interest in feminism and in women's rights and what for that time is a very progressive stance in the sense that, you know, um, if a woman is, for example, a prostitute, it's not because she is somehow internally corrupt or, you know, whatever. It's because society, because she's not offered any, that there's a societal critique that they'll apply to that situation and say, you know, she had no other options. This is the kind of violence of society being acted on women's bodies. You grew up in Egypt, is that correct? That's right, yeah. And so how much of this history were you aware of growing up? Because, you know, one of the things that surprised me recently is asking some Egyptian artists, contemporary Egyptian artists, and they said a lot of these paintings were really unseen. I mean, even if you saw them in a book, you'd never seen the original. I mean, how aware were you? Well, you know, you could visit the Museum of Egyptian Modern Art. It was almost a storehouse, you know, and people... It still kind of is. It still kind of is. Um, and it's... I think it's really fun. It's actually when I went back as a slightly older person and um, was working in a contemporary art gallery and meeting artists and writers who were actually working and living that I went, I started going back to this earlier history and becoming interested in the continuities or lack thereof between them. So it's, I think for me, the that Egypt's living art is really what will keep its history alive for today and for the future. That was Claire Davies, curator at the Metropolitan Museum. The Art and Liberty show at the Pompidou concludes on January 16, but we'll be traveling to Madrid, Dusseldorf, and Liverpool after that, while the Egyptian Surrealism show that began in Cairo will be traveling around the world until 2018. I'm Hrog Vartanian editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. Our executive producer is Giselle Rigatau. Our publisher is Viken Geiken. And the music is provided by Garen Geiken. Thanks again. <laughs>